The reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, found on page 1,234 of the Church Bible. To the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of whom is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this difficult passage which rattles us a little bit, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from it and to grow more like Jesus as we spend time in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we, in Smyrna this week, in the second of our letters to the churches in Revelation, and we're on to the topic of suffering Now, many of us just don't know what to do with a passage like this that rattles us on suffering. Yes, we do suffer, uh, but we suffer in the areas of ill health and maybe relationships. We suffer in the favorites uh, of of our British nation uh, with, with weather. You know, it's always too rainy or too hot or too cold or even too snowy for us. But our passage isn't about any of those kinds of suffering. Our passage that we have in front of us, and I'd love you to keep it open in front of you, is about suffering for identifying as being a Christian. You see, we are saved by grace alone, as the reformer Martin Luther told us. But then he added, grace is never alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German theologian, elaborated a bit on this by saying that grace is free, yes, but it's also costly, and we shouldn't give it away as a church too cheaply. Or in Jesus' words, the kingdom of heaven is like that precious pearl which is found, and then everything is sold in order to gain it. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like that treasure that is found in a field, and everything is sold to buy that field, to get to that treasure. Jesus' offer of salvation is one which is a free gift given by grace, but yet It's one which costs all that we own. Jesus' offer of salvation costs our very lives. 
And so we give up our lives that we can't hold on to in order to gain that which no one can take from us, to paraphrase the missionary Jim Elliot. The relationship with Jesus offers us the most incredible blessings for the here and now and into eternity, but it also comes with suffering as we follow a leader who suffered all the way to the cross and calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. Our leader found, Jesus found, that blessings and sufferings were tied together. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we find that the same is true for us. We are people who don't just love our families and our friends, but we love our enemies. And when we do that, it grates against our society that feels that something is wrong with us or they realize that something is wrong with them, that they don't love just as much as Jesus has called us to love. What might suffering for Christ look like? Here's an example. A good friend of mine who's with me at Theological College started a church in a very poor area of Plymouth on an estate about 18 months ago. And he said he didn't want this church to be a church for Christians, which might sound nonsensical, but he didn't, he meant he didn't want people just floating in from other churches, but he wanted a church which would impact the community that it was called to. And so he set about sharing Jesus in this local poor and difficult community. He started with the cafe owner who seemed to be the center of community life there, a chap called Dave. And amazingly, he found that people started coming to Christ. Uh, even last week, he had, uh, I think the week before last, eight people were baptized from that community. Those who hadn't known any Christian faith before, they came to Christ and wanted to die and be raised with him. But he's also found that life isn't easy in that setting. And he said it's okay when he has to take the body blows, but it's when his wife and his two small children get caught up in the difficulties that it really hurts him. He loves it when uh, two young women decide for Jesus on the Alpha course, and they're really getting it, the penny's dropping. And then he phones up two weeks later to say that those two girls were caught shoplifting and picked up by the police. He's excited when two of the youth join the fledgling youth group, but again upset when one of them goes to the other's house and beats him up on his doorstep. He's been excited about what's happened over Christmas. But yesterday he sent me a text to say that two individuals at the core of the church have fallen out yet again. And today at 12.30, he's going to go and chat to them and see if they can be reconciled. That's what suffering looks like inside a gospel of love. These are visual examples where a culture knows a better way 
And yet it struggles to count the cost and give all to take Christ at his word. My friend recently wrote to me, it feels very tempting to walk away when it's so hard, but we love the people too much. Pray that we know the wisdom and power of the cross and to know the authority of Jesus' name. That's what suffering for Christ looks like. Do you notice that it's the love that they have for those people who are coming to grips with the gospel that keeps them in that place? We love the people too much to walk away. And that's also why it makes sense for this letter on suffering to follow the one last week on love. Love produces suffering. Jesus' love for us took him to the place of ultimate suffering on the cross. Love and suffering are intertwined all the way into eternity. We don't seek suffering. We don't enjoy suffering. But we choose to love people and suffering results. As John Stott, who I'm so deeply indebted to for the sermon, writes, a willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. A willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. There's suffering that's a hallmark of the loving follower of Jesus, the disciple. And so as we follow Christ in loving those around us, we experience the cost of that love, which is suffering. And since I feel that I and many of us, I think, in our day and age have a lot to learn about suffering, it's really helpful for us to have this passage to Smyrna in front of us and learn from a church that suffered. So you might ask, where is Smyrna? I've never even heard of this place, Smyrna. Uh, If you can think of a map of Turkey in front of you, in the far west of Turkey, uh, Ephesus, which I think is called Solchuk, is that right? Uh, These days is uh, is sort of near the, the bottom on the west side. And if you go up from Ephesus, where we were last week on Love, we go up just 35 miles up the coast, you'll get to a town or city these days, which is called Izmir. Uh, And that, back in the day, was called Smyrna. It is meant to be one of the jewels, or the jewel, of the seven churches, or seven cities, rather, of that area. It is prosperous due to its uh, successful road system, and it is prosperous due to the fact that it is right on the coast and had good sea transport links. But this wasn't an easy place for Christians to live. Have a look at verse 9. Jesus, in Revelation, writes to Smyrna, and he says, I know your afflictions. I know your afflictions. Smyrna was a place where Christians were made to feel uncomfortable. They were persecuted. There's real cost to living in Smyrna as a Christian. Smyrna was the home to the personification of Rome as a goddess, Dea Roma, as well as the temple of Emperor Tiberius. So the culture in Smyrna was one of empire and emperor. 
uh, one of Rome and Caesar. And so you might ask, how would these Christians in Smyrna have acted when they were obligated to sprinkle an offering of incense on uh, the bust of Caesar? Something that they would have had to do, but they would have refused to do. The Christians there said that they only had one Lord and one God. They would not sacrifice to a false deity. But unlike the Jews of the area, they didn't have the right to be exempted from this sacrifice. And yet the Jews, according to Stott, furthered the harassment of the Christians by vilifying them for not making their sacrifices. The Jews of the area were upset with the sect of Judaism, these Christians who followed the way, and they didn't want to have anything to do with them, so they're willing to vilify them, to report them, to speak about them derogatorily in order to do away with them. So what did persecution look like for Christians in Smyrna? We find poverty, slander, imprisonment, and death. It doesn't make for easy reading, I promise you. Verse 9, Jesus speaks of, of their poverty. I know your afflictions and your poverty. You see, these ostracized Christians in Smyrna found that others were unwilling to trade with them even in this prosperous city. They found that they weren't willing to cut the corners that they used to cut before coming to Christ, and therefore unable to make easy profits in that way. And furthermore, they found that their material gains were confiscated from them. So they found themselves in poverty, in a city of wealth. Then Jesus speaks of the slander. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not. They find themselves being slandered. And this is doubly hard because it comes from those who call themselves the Lord's people but were exposed by the ascended Lord as a synagogue of Satan. Satan means the accuser or the slanderer. And so we can find in this place that the devil was at work within these people to misrepresent or discredit the Christians in Smyrna. It didn't matter what these guys did, but they always came out as the ones who were seen to be to blame. Poverty and then slander. Then verse 10. The devil will put some of you into prison. They found themselves in prison. Many of the early followers of Christ, including Peter and Paul and John, found themselves behind bars. In prison, you're unable to care for yourself. You're unable to care for those outside the prison who you love and who need your support. You find yourself in bondage, subject to the desires of the authorities and what they want for your life. And that is where some of these Christians were put. And then, verse 10, death. 
be faithful to the point of death, writes Jesus to this church. Polycarp was one of the early martyrs and one of the famous martyrs, in fact, of the second century. And he had been, believe it or not, Bishop of Smyrna. He was consecrated by the Apostle John. And uh, uh, he, in fact, probably, it's amazing, but he probably would have read this letter from Jesus to the church in Smyrna. But on the 2nd of February, A.D. 156, Polycarp was hauled before the authorities and commanded to recant his faith in Jesus. He refused, and a bonfire was lit under him. And as he stood on this bonfire, minutes away from death, he prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know, I thank you. This is incredible. He says, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. So that's what persecution looked like for the church in Smyrna. It looked like poverty, slander, prison, death. But with those came the most incredible blessings. Here we go. Verse 8. Verse eight um, Jesus writes of the first and the last. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. These Christians in Smyrna and we too know a God who is eternal. And we know, therefore, that these sufferings of ours on earth are momentary compared to an eternity with God that starts when we put our faith in him and carries on forever and ever. We have eternity waiting for us. The Beatitudes of Jesus were aimed at his disciples, most of whom were going to suffer death for him where he says to his disciples in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's weird. It's really weird. But when we are shunned, when we are looked down on, when we are thought of as unintelligent, or when we suffer downright persecution, we know as Christians that we are on the right road, since that is what our brothers and sisters who went before us experienced as they came this very way. As Christians, as little Christs, we are those who pick up our crosses and follow him. And we should, we should expect to receive a similar treatment to our master, as well as the same reward of eternal life that we have in him. So we know that God is eternal. Then verse 8 again. 
uh, Jesus speaks of um, uh, speaks to those who died and who came alive in him. Sorry, to, speaks of, of him who died and came alive again. You see, we know that one who died. We know the one who died on the cross. We know the victorious one who didn't just die, but defeated sin and death to raise again, to be raised again on Easter Day. We know that nothing, and this is a big nothing, we know that nothing is able to defeat Jesus. And so therefore we know that even if there are temporary setbacks in the here and now, that eternity has been won by Christ and that the victory is his. But the victory isn't always for this life. A gospel that preaches only prosperity, a gospel that preaches that your life will be better in the here and now and there won't be any sufferings in the here and now for your faith is a gospel that is going to be short-lived and one that we're going to throw off easily. So there's a story told of um, of an air steward who was walking around uh, an aeroplane and handing out parachutes. And the first person gets a parachute with the words, this parachute is going to make your life so much better. It's going to make your journey from here to our destination more comfortable and more fun. Put on your parachute and enjoy life of one who has a parachute on. So the man puts his parachute on and it feels a bit uncomfortable under his arms. It's scratching a little bit. It's chafing a little bit. But he says, I've been told that this parachute's going to make my life better. It's going to make it more comfortable, more enjoyable. And so he endures the pain for a little bit. And then his fellow passenger sitting just next to him uh, gets wonked, gets bonked, and his coffee spills all over the man of the parachute. And suddenly now he's burned. And now he's very uncomfortable. And he flies out in rage and rips his parachute off and chucks it across the aisle. And he says, I was promised a lie. This parachute hasn't made my flight more enjoyable. I will never, ever put on a parachute again. The air steward hands out a parachute to another person, a a lady with these words, put this parachute on. This aeroplane is going to crash. We don't have enough fuel. We can't get to the next landing spot. We are going to go down. And if you put this parachute on, which is uncomfortable, it's going to save your life. And so the lady puts her parachute on again. It's chafing under her arms again. She gets coffee spilt on her. But she knows that that parachute means life rather than death. And in fact, therefore, she goes around telling everyone else, put parachutes on. This aeroplane is going to die. Jesus' victory is for eternity. But it does mean that we are promised both blessings and sufferings as we go through life now. And that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10.30. We should expect suffering and pain for our faith now. Carrying on to the blessings, uh, verse 9, Jesus says, I know to them. 
I know when we believe in Jesus, we believe in, a, in the one who is all-knowing. We have one who truly knows our pain. We have one who goes through suffering with us when no one else is there, when no one else is watching. We know one, and we are known by one, who knows a pain, who knew a pain on the cross, which is so much worse than what we go through and what those in Smyrna went through. And so at times it might feel like it's just us and our suffering, but that's not true. We know the all-knowing one. A couple of years ago, one of my brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, were just about to head out to South America, where they were going to take on a church. And we're praying together as uh, my wife's extended family for uh, this couple just about to leave. And um, I found myself welling up and then just sobbing uncontrollably. Like, I I just couldn't stop the tears. Uh, They're just pouring down, just great sobs. And I couldn't work out what was happening to me. And the only interpretation that I could find is that the Lord had given me some of the pain that they were going to feel out in South America, out in Brazil, for those years. And there have been painful ones, in fact, as it's transpired. And God wanted them to know that he knew the pain that they were going to go through, that he felt that pain, and that he was with them through that pain. We have a God who is all-knowing. He is there with us in our pain. Then finally, verse 10, you will suffer persecution for 10 days, they're told knowing that he is in control. As we go through suffering and pain, we do know that Jesus is in control. We don't always understand why he allows us to go through trials, but we do know that he is both love in his character and loving in how he treats us. Therefore, we can trust him to be in control of our lives. So where does this leave us? Just to backtrack, we don't go looking for suffering, but we should expect it when we reach out to those around us with love. The Christians in Smyrna loved those around them enough not to choose to hide their light. They wanted to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And they knew by sharing Jesus with others in action and testimony, some of their friends would come into a relationship with Jesus, a love relationship that would last forever. And they also knew that following Jesus was going to be rough for them, that as they followed Jesus' teaching in their business transactions, they would lose out monetarily. They knew that as they refused to worship false idols, that they'd be ostracized and persecuted and thrown into prison. Let's follow Jesus in his love, even though we know that suffering 
is tied together with love and will be tied together with love through eternity. And we don't know the future of the church in our country. We don't know the future of this church in the Western world. We don't know what awaits us. So I'd love to end with uh, an extended um, passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which he wrote uh, as he looked forward to the persecution that is coming in Germany, but I think the Western world as well, potentially. Uh, This was a couple of years before he was executed, two weeks before the end of World War II. The German pastor and theologian writes, The time is coming when the confession of the living God will incur not only the hatred and fury of the world, for on the whole it has come to that already, but complete ostracism from human society. Christians will be hounded from place to place, subjected to physical assault, maltreatment, and death of every kind. We are approaching an age of widespread persecution. Therein lies the true significance of all the movements and conflicts of our age. Our adversaries seek to root out the Christian church and the Christian faith because they cannot live side by side with us, because they see in every word we utter and every every deed we do, even when they're not specifically directed against them, a condemnation of their own words and deeds. They are not far wrong. We do not reciprocate when hated, although we'd like, they'd like it better if we did, and so sink to their own level. Then he asks, how is the battle to be fought? And he replies, soon the time will come when we shall pray, not as isolated individuals, but as a corporate body, a congregation, A church, we shall pray in multitudes, albeit in relatively small multitudes, and among the thousands and thousands of apostates. We shall loudly praise and confess the Lord who is crucified and is risen and shall come again. We don't know what the future holds for the church. We know what it is like in Smyrna. We get a taste of what it is like for Bonhoeffer. And we know that currently we're living in quite good times for Christians in the West and in the UK. But in that, let's not look to our culture. Let's look to our risen Savior. Let's look to his love for us and his love for those around us and share him in love with those around us, whatever may come, and we'll assume that it includes suffering and persecution for him. Let's pray.